Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we're lucky enough to have Shaheen Farshi with us. And Shaheen is a partner in the venture capital firm Lux Capital, and Lux has a great website. They talk about making long-term bets on outsiders and contrarians, and their portfolio represents that. So I'm excited to hear more about that. And Shaheen's bio on their site is also quite fun. He can tell you more, but he has been a dedicated reader of car and driver since the age of 10, which is probably all you need to know about Shaheen. Except that he also has a PhD from UCLA, started a company, worked for different startups, and in the last 10 years with Lux Capital, has invested in some pretty fascinating companies across the satellite, ships, wireless energy, robotics, and other industries. So he must have some fun some days. So I brought Shaheen on the show just to learn more about his background, what he's learned, and what he's excited about these days. So Shaheen, thanks for uh, joining us today. It's great to be here. And, uh, yeah, see, I mean, that's a, that's, I look at a lot of websites every day, and you guys have a pretty good one there at Lux Capital. And, uh, yeah, it makes uh, makes me want to get in touch with you guys. <laughs> so I guess that's good. Thank you. And uh, so before uh, we talk more about where we're working on now, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I grew up in the Bay Area while my dad was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and he was a huge science fiction fan, and he exposed me at a at a young age to um, uh, to, to science fiction and uh, and a kind of um, I would say um, uh, technology. And um, uh, growing up, kind of in the Bay Area through the dot com bubble, um, I decided to pursue uh, my undergraduate degree in, in computer science and electrical engineering at Berkeley, and um, uh, having graduated in the bust, I chose to pursue my, my core passion, which to your point was, was cars. And, um, I decided to go to GM, uh, wasn't too crazy about working for a big company. So I decided to come back to California, uh, did a graduate degree and started a company around my research, which was building miniature wireless, uh, vital sign monitors for patients that were being moved around in hospitals. And it was uh, a very important lesson early on where it's one thing to pursue your passion and develop technology. And it's another thing to be able to build a viable business. And we quickly found ourselves in a very difficult business of trying to sell technology into the hospital supply chain. And after choosing not to dedicate the rest of my life to that, I decided to explore other options. And I got to know a few VCs and Lux approached me and said, hey, do you want to try being a VC? At that time, Lux was a relatively young firm uh, with little presence on the West Coast. And I effectively became the walking Lux West Coast office. And here I am 10 years later. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so you kind of just threw yourself into the VC world. Uh, you, you didn't really have much prior experience before joining Lux? Nope. No. Wow. Nope. I had zero experience with VC. So how did you get going? I mean, how do you... Uh, That's a good start? question. <laughs> A lot of people would ask me that. Uh, they would ask me without having had um, uh, my my personal uh, hypothesis going into this was that to be a successful VC, you'd have to be a serial entrepreneur, to have to have started many companies successfully, and then gradually transition uh, into a VC role. 
but I quickly learned that the venture capital business is becoming very institutionalized in the sense that the discipline of being a VC um, is a is a craft in itself. Although it is extremely valuable to have operational experience, um, it is not absolutely required. In many cases, spending more time as a VC and being exposed to many types of companies and many, I would say, events that occur at these companies throughout their lifetimes also does equip you to be a very, I would say, competitive uh, venture capitalist. I think that um, having seen many companies go from inception stage to exit um, and go through all these growing pains, um, I think you're far more capable of handling the nuances that come up um, that are inevitable throughout the kind of lifetime uh, of a company and helping management overcome these challenges and build amazing companies. I think, uh, again, the process of being exposed to many of these uh, uh, startup companies throughout the venture financing and growth process, I think is a very valuable uh, experience that may be as valuable, perhaps more valuable than actually being at the helm of a company uh, for many years. Hmm. That's no, that's interesting. And do you think that would make you, let's say if everyone wanted to go back into the and startup company, do you think you'd be much better equipped now to start up a company? Because of that, absolutely. I think I think being a, a venture capitalist is very much like being a physician. Um, just like how a physician spends a lot of their uh, time, even early on, just seeing patients, seeing cases. Mm. Um, I think every single one of these startups um, that you either evaluate as an investment or actually engage with as an investment uh, from the fund um, are case studies that um, are valuable when it when it comes time to make hard decisions. Uh, down the road or make tough calls uh, down the road. I think going back, uh, for anybody who spends time uh, looking at startup companies or investing in startup companies, I think those experiences will be very valuable when they go out and start their own companies. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And So, yeah, I'd like to dig into a little bit more of that because I know you've had a number of exits with your portfolio companies. Uh, but before I do, maybe, can you give a brief overview on Lux Capital? Uh, I try sure. To give a so yeah. Lux was founded uh, shortly after the dot-com bust with the hypothesis that the next wave of great companies will be built around innovations in the sciences. Um, we initially uh, invested in biotech, semiconductors, and energy-related companies. Um, one of those uh, companies um, was uh, a startup we founded in our offices uh, around the hypothesis that nuclear waste is going to be a big problem. This is around 2008. Uh, this is at a time when most venture capitalists were investing in uh, wind and solar and, and biofuels. And we effectively built this company from scratch in our offices. And uh, a couple years later, uh, as a result of the Fukushima disaster, this company went from basically zero to 100 miles, I wouldn't say zero, but five miles per hour to 100 miles per hour overnight and was very effective in delivering uh, a solution to uh, TEPCO, which was the operator of the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant. And uh, the company was incredibly successful, and, and it recently was acquired by Veolia uh, from $400 million. Wow. And having um, been the founders of that company, we were um, uh, big owners of that company. We wanted a good chunk of that. And so we um, more recently have been expanding uh, the scope of technologies that we invest in, we've invested in 3D printing, 3D scanning, uh, digital manufacturing broadly, uh, robotics and automation. We'll talk about driverless cars. 
Um, I led our investments in Planet Labs, which is building small satellites and putting them into orbit to do daily Earth observation. Um, we've done a handful of digital health and healthcare IT companies. And so we continue to focus on um, uh, fundamental innovations applied to billion-dollar markets. Um, however, the scope of those innovations continue to broaden uh, as uh, we as a fund grow. And we're currently managing $350 million um, from our current fund, and uh, we cut checks typically from $5 to $10 million uh, to lead Series A rounds, although, so, although we also uh, are active seed investors as well. Hmm. And we have offices in New York and Menlo Park, and I'm based in our Menlo Park office. Okay. Well, that's a great overview. Yeah, I mean, you guys are doing some really interesting things. I mean, do you think it's, I mean, what, what's kind of your investment thesis? Because you, you invest in a variety of things, which in this, in today's world, it seems like uh, that could be an advantage. Um, yeah. How do you guys decide kind of what to focus on? Sure. So um, I can give, I can answer that question in two ways. Um, one around individual investments and second around kind of the broad thesis. Um, I can start with the broad and then narrow down uh, to the specific. So we, we broadly look for uh, companies that are leveraging unique technology that can disrupt um, a multi-billion dollar industry. So we want to bet on a, on a, on a solution, on a technology uh, that could be the basis of a very attractive um, business. And so that's the macro uh, view, which is very different from other uh, venture capital firms that uh, tend to invest in kind of, you know, more consumer and enterprise types of companies. Um, we take a step back and we look more broadly um, at disruptive technology and, again, building billion-dollar industries around them. Um, from a uh, from a specific investment standpoint, we really uh, concentrate on founders. We look for founders that can articulate, communicate a vision that helps them recruit the very best talent um, that could uh, execute on that vision and build a, a magical company. I, I believe in the virtuous cycle um, of a fantastic story attracting amazing people, and then those amazing people attracting more amazing people enabling a company to do magic. And that's what we look for as it relates to specific investments. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, oh man, I just have so many questions for you. It's hard to know where to start. And, but, uh, I think we need like a three hour interview. Uh, <laughs> so it, I, I, I'm, I'm a little curious. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you, uh, incubated that the nuclear waste company. And, uh, cause you know, a lot of VCs kind of do that, but not, uh, not always successfully. Like, how does that look? Did you guys come up with the idea or how is that different than, uh, you know, two founders coming to you and you just having them in their office and you funding them? Um, how did that kind of transfer? Sure. So that was, that was very much of a, a thesis that was generated by my partner, Josh in, in New York. And the thesis was that if you have more nuclear power, you obviously generate more waste. If you decommission sites, then you have a lot of waste. And if you keep status quo, then there's still uh, obviously a bunch of waste. And it was an area that um, a lot of um, uh, investors weren't looking at. And so basically uh, uh, what my partners did was start a company and then hire some amazing executives from the industry. And it, took, and it wasn't your traditional Silicon Valley kind of booty bearing uh, young entrepreneur. These were silver haired um, uh, industry veterans 
uh, that were the right people for this. And um, basically, um, uh, they took over and um, uh, they, they built this company and, and we uh, obviously funded it and provided guidance. And um, the rest was, was absolutely magic. And we owe it all to the founders of the company, um, uh, uh, the, the people that were uh, working hard at the company. Hmm, interesting. That's a great story. That must have been fun. Um, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, well, and that kind of goes to my next question. You know, I know you've had a number of exits and... Uh, at most of your exits, have you, and you, we talked about kind of seeing the life cycle of a company. At most of these companies that are, where they're, that exited, were there times when you saw that they, well, were pretty close to failing? You know, you always hear about uh, lots of companies kind of facing the death. That's Is a good question. Yes. Uh, being a startup investor, all of these companies, um, you know, when you look from the outside, it may seem up to the right. Uh, but when you're, um, on the inside is certainly a roller coaster. And so, um, uh, without mentioning specifics, there, uh, were companies in our portfolio that were the greatest returners, but had an incredibly difficult, difficult time raising money at multiple points throughout their lifetimes, uh, where it was up to the kind of inside investors, uh, continuing to support the company, uh, the companies you had, uh, companies that had a very difficult time. Um, selling product or identifying their product and getting customers to care about their technology yet still uh, being able to generate great returns. And you had companies that had uh, challenges with technology that had rampant delays um, but still managed to um, deliver a product and, and get the market excited about their product. So it certainly is not a, a I, I have yet to see a company that has that kind of up into the right kind of trajectory. Huh. Um uh, but uh, I think it's it's pretty much given that any startup company, no matter how successful, at the end, uh, will have uh, extreme challenges throughout its lifetime. Which is kind of refreshing because <laughs> nothing's easy, right? And so when you hit those roadblocks, you're not alone. Even though really successful folks hit those same roadblocks, and absolutely. And so you know, during that life cycle of a, a company and a startup, you know, what do you see as your your role, you know, cheerleader, psychologist, introduce, introducer to other investors and your network, or how, how do you kind of like to help companies? I think you said it. Um, our job as investors is to, uh, well, everybody has their own opinion, but um, my, I see my role um, as the champion uh, empowering the founder to achieve uh, and perform at their very best. And whether that's being a sounding board for ideas, whether that's listening to them or, or sitting down with them as they event, whether that's uh, going out there and helping them find uh, amazing people to help them uh, with specific challenges associated with their companies, whether it's help them raise money, um, whether it's just sitting down and having a beer with them and, and, and hearing them out. So um, we are in the business of uh, empowering our entrepreneurs, we're in the business of helping them be their very best. And when I sit down with, with, with CEOs and teams, the first thing I ask myself is, what can I do to help them be their very best? And there are many great VCs uh, here in Silicon Valley alone. And um, there are many cases where somebody else down the street perhaps would be that investor, again, or that partner uh, who can help them achieve their best. But I want to be convinced that, uh, you know, when I'm partnering with an entrepreneur, that I will be um, the best in helping them 
achieve their best. Hmm. That's nice. I like that. Okay. And and can you tell us a little bit about your portfolio? Maybe your personal. I know uh, Lux has a, a large number of companies, but uh, the companies you're working with now. Sure, sure. So when I started at Lux, uh, being a a semiconductor guy, I, I led our I led our investments in a couple of chip companies. So one uh, was Silicon Clocks, which was using uh, MEMS resonators to obviate the need for quartz crystals. Um, electronic devices for timing purposes. So we sold that to Silicon Labs. Um, I led our investment in Cybeam, which was doing 60 gigahertz transceivers to enable gigabit per second communications so you could stream uh, HD from your portable device to your TV. Um, that company was sold to Silicon Image, which is the inventor and owner of HDMI. Um, more recently, I led our investments in Planet Labs, which I alluded to earlier, which is making small satellites for daily Earth observation. Um, these are a couple of guys um, out of NASA uh, who invented the PhoneSat, which was using cell phone components to put small satellites in space and do interesting things. And they basically took that a step further and put a telescope in there into a shoebox-sized satellite and started gathering images from orbit um, that were pretty good. And got a lot of big companies interested, and so um, we're proud to be partnered with them. Um, I led our investment in Nirvana, which was um, uh, before being sold to Intel. Obviously, um, more recently, they were um, using uh, they were inspired by the brain, uh, using kind of architectures that are similar to uh, our understanding of the brain uh, to do deep learning in AI and silicon. So. Uh, think about how uh, GPUs or graphics processing units uh, were very efficient at doing floating points arithmetic in the 80s uh, to render polygons to make graphics. Uh, these uh, uh, chips were designed natively uh, to do the same algorithms that are used in uh, AI and deep learning natively um, to accelerate these by many orders of magnitude, these operations by many orders of magnitude uh, to bring AI to the masses. And so um, uh, also made a couple of more recent investments that I can't talk too much about. One is a driverless car company called Zooks, uh, which is really revolutionizing urban transportation um, and a couple of others that are kind of in the pipeline. And uh, you'll hear more about shortly. Okay. Yes. I, it was one of my questions on Zooks and I, I looked like they're in stealth, but I was hoping they're out of stealth by the time we talked. But <laughs> understand uh, if you can't talk about it. But I'm curious. I think the tagline is something what what like what comes after the automobile. So I'm like, well, that'd be interesting to hear. But uh, next time, next time. Um, so how, how do you how do you find these companies? Um, and are most of them, I guess, let's see, I'm, I guess most of them are in the Bay Area. Do you typically invest in the Bay Area? Bay Area? Our portfolio is spread across the country. Yeah. We have uh, a handful of companies in the in the Boston area, um, uh, primarily life science companies, and we have one uh, stealth kind of digital manufacturing company up there as well. Um, we have um, a handful of companies in New York. Uh, and yes, a lot of companies in Silicon Valley and a few in Seattle as well. And um, we, we like to uh, look uh, across the country and really it comes down to talent. And so um, we like to invest in areas where you have a, a talent pool 
that would really give um, a startup an unfair competitive advantage. So that could really be anywhere. It just so happens so far to be concentrated in Boston, New York, and, and, and the Bay Area right now. Gotcha. Okay. All right. And, uh, oh, and there's another company that, uh, I, is it pronounced Servios? It's the VR company. Servios. Servios. Ser- yeah. Servios. Okay. And what, what are those, what are those guys doing? Sure. So, uh, that's another one of my investments. The company is, is based in, in Los Angeles. And, um, what they're doing is inventing new VR experiences. So this is an extremely talented group out of USC. Uh, with a vision to create truly immersive VR. So take VR from demos, which is what, what we typically see, to experiences that would want, that would make people want to stay within VR, uh, for more than the kind of typical 15 minutes. Um, and they actually launched their first product. It's a, a game, um, that hit the top of the Steam charts, uh, which applies to all PC games. And this company became the first VR company to make it on a, onto a Steam wow. chart, let alone the top of the Steam chart, uh, Steam charts, uh, in, uh, uh, back in August. And, um, there are some very interesting things going on there. Um, and, um, we expect, uh, the company to be delivering some pretty amazing content, uh, in the next year that we expect would make VR a, a, a more mainstream kind of product more than a kind of G whiz. Uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, I would say, I want to use the right words here not to offend anybody, but uh, kind of niche product today. Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I, I do VR quite a fair amount, and yeah, it's, uh, you can only stay, at least I can only stay in it so long without, without uh, needing a break. So I, I'll have to go check out. I saw that they had a game. I'll have to go check it out and uh, see how it is. That's, that's cool. And, uh, That'd be great to spend more time in VR if possible. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So how do you uh, personally keep learning and like, um, how do you decide what to read? Cause you, you cover so many different interesting areas. Um, how do you stay on top of things? Good, good question. So I love reading MIT tech review and IEEE spectrum. They cover a, a good breadth of technologies. Um, there's a, um, uh, there's a, a kind of a, um, I'm not sure if you want to call it a, a blog, uh, but there's a, uh, uh, there's a, a source of, of kind of daily technology kind of content based on scientific publications uh, called Science Daily uh, that I tend to browse uh, every day. And um, that's on the kind of technology side. And obviously, I, I look at kind of recaps from conferences and um, I look at articles that are published every so often as well. Um, but it's really learning from entrepreneurs. I learned the most from my meetings with great entrepreneurs. And um, the a lot of the referrals either come from my own uh, CEOs uh, or team members within my portfolio um, or other investors uh, that I've worked with in the past and are looking for stuff for us to partner up together on. And I think that would be the highest signal source of opportunities uh, for me personally. And I also go to events and, um, get referrals from friends and, uh, uh, run into entrepreneurs here and there as well. So, yeah, I mean, being in Silicon Valley, no matter where you go, there's always a concentration of great entrepreneurs and, um, uh, you tend to run across, uh, them very frequently. Have, uh, most of your investments been done through worm leads? Has somebody ever reached out to you cold and end up making an investment? 
good question. I have reached out to entrepreneurs cold. Okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> and done investment. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, and and the vast majority of the others were uh, were through uh, warm leads. Um, the reality is that um, the network here is is, is so uh, tight um, that um, it is very likely that uh, if you're a, if you're a very well connected entrepreneur, which you which you should be if you're starting a company, then you can quickly kind of be routed uh, to the right investor. Mm. Which is why I'm, uh, the majority of the uh, opportunities we've seen um, have come through people that we've worked with. Gotcha. And, and how do you decide who to reach out to? Which companies? Uh, do you read about them, or does somebody say, "Hey, you go. She should go check this company out." Um, do you know that they're raising yeah. money, or are you just curious? Or yeah. So there's one company that I did, and um, I basically was uh, a friend approached me and said, "Hey." Um, I've been trying to talk to these guys, but they're radio silence. I have CEO's email address um, to see it. Maybe he'll respond to you. And uh, basically, I, I wrote a couple sentences uh, describing my thesis in the space, and I quickly got a reply. So, um, huh. uh, yes, that's, that, that's sort of the process there. Interesting. Okay. And is there any certain uh, industries or areas you're especially interested in or pursuing, or is it more... Um, trying to find the, the great talent to match with the, the industry, industries you've already mentioned. Good. Yeah. So it's more the latter. Okay, um, right. but, uh, as far as kind of broad, broad industries, uh, I, I'm personally very excited about automation, uh, and robotics. I'm very excited about, um, novel applications of AI. Uh, I'm excited about space broadly kind of going, going back to my kind of original passion for, for Star Trek and, uh, and science fiction. And um, also really excited about human machine interfaces. So VR would be one one example. Um, but basically, um, being able to better uh, connect technology with our with our bodies and better interface uh, with technology and uh, expand our intelligence. If you look at AI, um, the rate at which AI is accelerating is just unbelievable. And so the question is, um, in, in the inevitable circumstance that AI exceeds humans. Um, how how do humans keep up and 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 are able to to kind of better benefit from that? And uh, so that kind of kind of goes back to how we can better interface with machines. And a lot of people think about ripping open our skulls and putting electrodes in our brains as interfacing with machines. I, I don't see it that way. I think there are far more subtle and efficient ways that we can interface with technology. I mean, you think about the mouse, uh, how powerful the mouse was in terms of being able to interact with with, with computers. I think VR is a step in that direction, but I think there's there's many creative and non-invasive ways uh, that we can interact with machines. We just we just have to be a little bit more creative. Yeah, yeah. Like voice is kind of another whole almost platform now too. With the absolutely, stuff. yeah, interesting. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're almost out of time here, unfortunately. And uh, let's see if I I guess uh, maybe I have time for a. Do you have time for a one more one more question? Sure. Sure. Um, all right. Anything for the audience. Anything for the audience. Great. Excellent. So I, I was curious about, uh, and I don't always ask this, but I think you've seen so much stuff and uh, across so many different companies. And so I was curious about like mistakes and like things you've kind of learned. I know it's kind of a broad question, but uh, 
I don't know. You seem like a good person to. Uh, I think that's a great question. Yeah. That's a great question. So um, I got into venture as a scientist. And when you're a scientist, you are indoctrinated with the notion of whatever problem that you're solving, uh, because you're underpaid to do it, is the most important problem in the world. And once you solve this problem, then the world is going to be a better place. And I learned the hard way that just solving problems in of themselves uh, doesn't really mean anything. And it's a matter of how you can impedance match that solution um, with a need and, and to build a business around that need. So my biggest uh, concern, or I'd say diligence item, when I was talking to founders was whether or not they can deliver on the technology that they're promising. And what I learned um, early on was that when you pick the founder or, or, or the team uh, that's the right team that can attract amazing people, they will deliver. It, it sometimes takes longer and costs more money, but they deliver. The bigger challenge is how willing the market is to embrace this amazing solution and whether or not you can build an interesting business uh, around this solution where you as an investor um, generate a return on your investments. More often than not, I see these teams execute flawlessly. Um, however, uh, experience challenges as it relates to getting customers to actually pay uh, for that solution, where which may seem obvious on paper, but in reality actually um, isn't uh, as straightforward. And so the biggest challenge or the biggest lesson that I learned or mistake that I made was to emphasize too much on technology. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and I should have emphasized more on, okay, just assume the technology is going to work. Uh, is there an interesting business here? And this turned into a, uh, a great investment, uh, assuming the technology works. And as, as an investor coming in, like say a series A, how do you, how do you vet, you know, we're always, you're always trying to figure out who's going to pay for it and how much. Um, but how, you know, sometimes at Series A, I'm guessing some of these companies, especially like the chip companies, are not that far along. You know, do you just, do you talk to the customers or how do you, how do you get comfortable enough to be like, okay, I think there's actually something here. People are actually going to pay for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, you do talk to customers. And what do you have to tease out? Are those customers who say, oh, yeah, sure, of course, this is really interesting. Well, why not? I mean, what does a customer have to lose um, by, uh, uh, by, let's say, you know, uh, not kind of expressing interest in some product or technology that could give them an edge potentially? Um, you really have to kind of tease out um, those customers who really um, have an incentive and um, are, are genuinely willing uh, to, to take a risk on a new technology uh, versus those that are just trying to secure a free option um, by by championing the technology, uh, you know, early on, but then not taking action uh, when it comes down to it. Interesting. And so, um, to answer your question, uh, it's to talk to as many customers as you can. And uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but when I was an undergrad during my freshman year, um, I, I I'd sell cars. I was on a I was working at a, a Nissan dealership. The summer of my freshman to sophomore year, just given my passion for cars, I thought I'd try being a car salesman. And um, I basically uh, was was trained to ask customers, "What is it going to take for you to buy and drive today?" 
and I've carried that lesson uh, into my um, uh, my career as a VC when I ask customers, what is it going to take uh, for you to buy this product? What Or what is it going to take even earlier on? What is it going to take for you to enter some kind of a partnership with this company uh, towards accelerating this product? So basically the question is, what is it going to take for you to put some skin in the game? And at that point, the answer should be, oh, well, they should demonstrate X, Y, and Z, whether it's certain performance metrics or certain uh, economics um, or get to a certain volume uh, on the manufacturing side. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I try to tease out how committed these customers really are. Uh, and those that are willing to uh, partner with these companies uh, under very comp- company-favorable terms uh, with a reasonable and well-defined set of milestones that we think we can deliver with that round of financing, then obviously I'm far more interested. Hmm. On that, yeah, that last part is probably especially important, I suppose, because like you said, lots of customers can say, sure, we're interested, this is great, just hit these milestones, but it's another, like, <laughs> actually put it to paper and then commit to exactly. it and sign on it. And uh, even though it doesn't make them, maybe force them to buy a million dollars worth of it, at least they have signed an LOI or some type of a partnership. Yeah, that's interesting. That's Exactly. Yeah. And it and shouldn't remain unsaid that these customers should be representative of a huge business for the company. They can't be um, they can't be small customers. We'd like them to be big customers that can represent yeah. many, many millions of dollars in business uh, for the company. Yep, makes sense. All right, well, this has been uh, great, and I think, uh, unfortunately, we got we should probably end it, but uh, Shaheen, definitely appreciate your time and thoughts, and this and uh, fun to hear what you're working on and what you're excited about. It's been great being here. Thank you again. Definitely, and uh, yeah, so... And I appreciate everyone listening to another episode of Flower Labs. As always, it's uh, great to hear uh, hear your silence on the other end. But uh, and I hope you uh, uh, get in. Stay tuned next time. So thanks everyone for listening, and thanks again, Shane. Thank you. All right, bye.